Yesterday we looked at freeness through the lens of relaxation. A physical, muscular ease that we can know more fully in life, as well as actually subtler levels of relaxation. The relaxation of our being, the relaxation of some of our habits, the relaxation of certain neuroses, the relaxation of fears and fixations, etc. And knowing a certain bodily freedom, a freedom in this body, we might say. Freeness with and in the midst of this physical life, whatever the actual condition of physical life in any given moment. And today I'd like to offer some reflections about freeness from our own mind. Within different practice traditions, there may be, there are different visions actually for what a free mind is I tend to think of the sort of shorthand for habitual mind maybe as lazy, crazy, needy, greedy. We worked on that one before. Demandeur délirant, feignant et fou. Lazy, crazy, needy, greedy. Those are the kind of habit directions of mind. And in, in calling them like that, it's kind of a reminder in a way not to take mind so personally. Not to take one's own habits and neuroses and fixations so seriously. As one teacher says, life is much too important to be taken so seriously. In some visions of a free mind, there is no more traditional Buddhist language, there is no more greed, hatred and delusion. No more neediness, greediness, laziness or craziness. Some visions of freeness, traditional visions of freeness, are one in which there's a a, what we might call an absolute calm or an absolute clarity or an absolute um, uprooting of greed, hatred and delusion in the classical language. Demands, defenses, distractions, compulsions, contractions, confusions. And in other visions of a free mind, there's a sense of it doesn't matter so much whether there is the presence or absence of those things. What one's interested in more is an independence from them. So whether some fixation arises, some desire arises, some fear arises, that there's a spaciousness called awareness. There's a free abiding. 
there's the capacity to recognize the arising of some mind object and the capacity to just to not involve oneself with it, to not identify with it, to not make much of it, so that that object can be seen and explored and have its nature known. And then there's enough clarity and discernment to see whether this movement of mind is worth following or not. I think those two different visions are important in their distinction. And you might, those of you who are kind of who feel like you have some kind of vision of freeness, those of you who may be established in uh, in teachings and practices of one or several or other traditions. What's your vision of freeness? Where are you inclining the, the, the intention and the action and the momentum of your practice? Because I think it makes a difference whether we're aiming for or expecting a, a freeness in which no difficulty arises anymore no problematic mind state arises anymore. Or whether we're orientating towards a capacity to freely navigate the appearances and expressions of all kinds of different mind states, whatever they are. So we might come back to that distinction later on in the retreat. I can never tell where the hole is in this cup. There. But for now, one important distinction between those two visions is we can't stop mind from arising in different forms. Right? We can't decide not to be needy or greedy or lazy or crazy anymore. Those things just appear. Right? They can't be squashed they can't be um, gotten around. They can't be meditated away. So in a way, as a kind of operational, as a way of working, the only way of working with those things that make sense, if we can't st- make them stop, is the meeting and exploring. Looking closely into so as to see the nature of. And then maybe we'll find out whether that leads to a stopping, a ceasing, or whether it leads to um, a freeness with, a clarity around. So, in that sense, we get interested in the stuff that mind produces. The stories about experience that mind produces. The reactivity to experience that mind produces. That's one way of understanding all of the friction that we generate. Story plus reactivity. Busy interpreting and describing what's happening 
with then whatever kind of push or pull, whatever kind of neediness, greediness, resistance, etc., etc., goes along with it. There's a famous story in the Buddhist tradition of two monks on a walk together, and they get to a river crossing, and there's a young woman who is struggling to cross the, the, the flow of the river. And so one of the monks says, well, I'll, I'll help you, I'll carry you across. The monk carries the woman across, sets her down on the other side. They carry on their walk. There's a strange, awkward silence between them. And after 20 minutes or so, second monk can't contain anymore himself. He said, what was that? You know our vows. We're not allowed to even touch a woman. And you just picked her up in your arms and carried her across the river. And the first monk says, yes, but I put her down on the other side and you're still carrying her. So, first monk is a kind of simplicity, freedom in the midst of, capacity to take some appropriate reaction and to leave minds, stories and reactivity alone. Poor old second monk, nevertheless sincerely, you know, caring for the rules of conduct and you imagine those 20 minutes of walk. The story, the justification. Right? You know how we get when we think somebody's done something wrong and somebody's offended me? Right? And the story, and each layer of the story makes me more and more and more right. right? More and more and more justified. Makes the other more and more and more wrong. More and more and more ignorant. And all the, the rub of that, the story and the reactivity, the tension and the drama. Mm. Buddha describes this practice, this practice of freeness and awakening, as most essentially the, the, free, the meeting and the freeing up of dukkha. Dukkha Pali word, usual translation, suffering. It's a little clumsy, the word suffering. It only points to one dimension of dukkha. The etymology of dukkha means that which is hard to bear. That which is hard to bear. And there are many things in life that are hard to bear. Many things which we might there's which we can call kind of basic dukkha, first arrow dukkha. Were we talking about first arrow, or was that last week? Right. And then there's the stuff that's hard to bear, which is the story and reactivity. Right. Second arrow dukkha. And the dukkha of tension and drama. That's really hard to bear. Right. 
the dukkha of the second monk walking along. I think quite a good translation of dukkha is tension and drama. The way body experiences dukkha is as tension. That's what we were exploring yesterday, right? The, the ways in which we tense up in often tension patterns that are so habitual that we're so used to, we don't even recognize them as tension. And if we don't know that we're tense in those places, then we can't soften them. We're so habituated to them that they feel normal. Most of us live with a certain kind of bodily tension and, uh, and density that actually gives us our sense of ourselves. And if you want to have a sense of what that's like, just tense now. Just tense, tense your arms, tense your legs, tense your torso, and f- just feel how you get more dense. You feel there's more you, you're more solid. I'm really definitely me now. Right? And the world is definitely over there and out there, and the boundaries seem more obvious. Right? And now... So keep doing it if you're not already doing it. And now, relax. And just feel what happens to your sense of yourself. Feel what happens to your physical boundaries. Feel the way in which there's a certain softening. The way one doesn't feel so heavy. One doesn't feel so dense. One doesn't feel so separate. One doesn't feel so defended. And in some ways, I think that's a really good example of the process by which we can meet and resolve all kinds of different layers, more and more subtle layers of tensions. And tensions that ordinarily, as I say, we may not even know we're carrying. So body um, creates and responds to dukkha as tension. And then mind creates... And reinforces dukkha as drama. All kinds of drama. Usually the drama of me. Like we were speaking about those I thoughts this morning. The dramas of what I need, what I want, what I think, what I like, where I'm going, who I am, how I should be, etc., etc., etc. And so much of what we're doing in these two aspects of practice we've, we've fo- uh, spoken about, on the one hand, feeling for a naturalness and a freeness to experience. And on the other hand, just seeing, sometimes seeing in quite a shocking or alarming way, all of the tension and drama that I'm creating moment by moment. We'll just take today for an example. Now, today is not too hot today. Right? We haven't, all we've done is sit around a little bit, walk around quietly, have a nice lunch, and take rest. It's hard to think of a simpler kind of day. If we describe that, oh, I just sat quietly. Then after a while, I just walked quietly by the river among the trees. Then I sat quietly a little more. 
Then I had a nice lunch and then I took rest. Oh, and how was it? It was awful. <laughs> really? How come? Well, because I created a lot of tension and drama around that. I kept making drama about what was happening. I made drama about what wasn't happening. I made drama about what I wished was happening. I made drama about what I thought should be happening. I made drama about what I remembered happening from a previous time. Wow, why did you do that? That's what I do. (laughs) That's my habit. Oh. Except actually, whoever would be listening, if they were really listening, they'd say, oh yeah, me too. So, there's lots of ways we could look at um, at tension and drama, uh, various ways of uh, creating, reinforcing, and believing in it. Creating it, reinforcing it, and believing in it. And the way in which some part of us, even though we reinforce it, even though we tend to believe it, some part of us knows this isn't right. right? If you totally believed all your tension and drama, you wouldn't be here. right? You'd be out there trying to manage the tension and drama, trying to go and find who's to blame and sort them out. Right? Or trying to resolve all the conditions that uh, one finds difficult or unsatisfying. And yet, all of us have at least some way, some clarity around the fact that, oh, maybe it's more important to give attention to the drama-making and the drama-reinforcing and the drama-believing than it is to only trying to kind of put out those fires, manage those dramas. And somehow, just knowing that I create a lot of tension and drama, and I don't, there's a way in which I know I don't need to. There's a way in which I know a possibility of living freely around life and experience. I know this vision of relaxing the tension putting down the drama. And there's something beautiful and important about that knowing. And at the same time, there's something that can be make us quite unquiet in a way, that I have the vision of that, and yet the vision isn't enough. Right? The vision's enough to get you here, but then the vision is it by itself isn't enough to put down that tension and drama. So we start to see how invested I am in it. In all kinds of ways. And it shows up. Yeah, in all kinds of ways. Anxiety. And so I've been speaking with some people about anxiety uh, earlier today. And the way... Anxiety is, is 
an interesting manifestation of drama. Right? The generating of a lot of uh, worry, concern about what's happening. Or actually, if we look closely, often about what we think could happen in the next moment. Sometimes that kind of anxiety is triggered situationally. Right? Social situations might trigger some anxiety. Or confrontation with somebody in authority might trigger some anxiety. Or feeling as if somebody may be judging us can trigger some anxiety. What, what do they think of me? Etc., etc. And the nature of that drama making, of that anxiety, is that we kind of, we get further and further away from kind of basic, direct, sensory contact. And we get more and more into the abstractions of what, what, what might be happening and what could it be like and what if that happens. And the possibilities for what if are infinite. Our capacity to imagine disaster scenarios is infinite. A friend of mine was giving Dharma teachings once, and we sat in the chai shop before the teachings, a group of three or four of us, and she asked us for a list. First, a list of all uh, states that were positive and pleasant. And we happiness, joy, delight, etc. I mean, she wrote them all down. And then she asked us for a list of states that were difficult, negative, unpleasant, uh, etc. And we gave her another list. Which list do you think was longer? Right. Unbelievable! The vocabulary we could come up with for the second list. So many words to describe misery. How interesting that we tend to define ourselves much more. We come up with words for, we create a lot of importance and meaning around our misery. We have a really sophisticated vocabulary around you know, many, many shades of misery. And all of that gets generated, as I say, in a kind of disconnect. What's most helpful in the drama of anxiety, whatever the situation is that provokes it, is just the, the, um, the coming back to something immediate. The base of this practice, the way we've been doing these days, using breathing body as something immediate. There's, there's a quality of immediacy that's available in just tuning into body standing or body sitting that is a really helpful counterpoint to the racing mind that's creating anxiety, drama, uh, various scenarios, etc. So anxiety can be triggered, as I say, situationally. There's also that kind of anxiety which we might just call habit anxiety. That's just where our mind goes as a kind of default mode. I had a a school friend 
who just used to worry, uh, worry, worry, worry a lot. And of course, he he could always find some good reason for worrying. And then when we finished our high school exams, we went to Cornwall, very beautiful part of the, the the southwest tip of England, and we spent some time camping and being on the beach, and he was relaxed and he was having such a good time. And then one day he said to me, "Martin, I've got nothing to worry about. It's really worrying me." <laughs> right? And I remember really being struck by that at the time. Wow, that's what worry is like. If the habit of worry gets going, right? it's like we identify with the state of worry as like just what I should be doing most of the time. We find something to worry, right? we create, we reinforce, and we believe in the thing we're worrying about. So much that even if there's nothing to worry about, that itself seems worrying. It's strange, right? There's nothing wrong here. That can't be right. Nothing wrong can't be right. <laughs> and um, it can be painful to see the habit of worry, or the habit of anxiety. And yet important, actually, to be able to see how it's a habit. A habit that probably got formed for some very good reason. And got formed by painful circumstances, maybe repeatedly painful circumstances, that gave me the real sense that things are not okay. That I... that that my well-being is under threat, or my safety is under threat, or my life is under threat, or my person is under threat. And so one learns to be very vigilant, right? to scan situations, to be attuned to possible danger. And at one point that may have been an important strategy, uh, necessary for one's survival even. And yet then we see that how that habit has been reinforced so that even when a situation is trustworthy, when people are, made, are kind, when body and mind is under no threat, that the habit keeps that certain vigilance going. So there too, this practice of recognizing the habit of anxiety or drama. And the, the important capacity, like we were speaking a little bit about in this morning's session, to be able to care for that one who didn't feel safe. To actually attend to the anxious state itself. If somebody, if your good friend comes to you feeling anxious, what do you do? You turn towards them with some reassurance, some steadiness, some care. And that's what anxiety needs. For us to, our own, our internal anxiety, to turn towards it. Not to get into the content, 
but to turn towards it with reassurance, steadiness, care. To give ourselves the opportunity to actually let the anxiety run out a little. To find a ground below the habitual tension and drama. And you may relate to a large extent or maybe only a small extent to those two cases of anxiety, drama. And then there's also what we could call existential anxiety. Just the basic concern and doubt and uneasiness with who I am, with who I'm supposed to be with the meaning of life. Who am I? Often, who am I is touted as a deeply spiritual question. Some whole practices turn around asking, who am I? Who am I? Actually, who am I is a deeply anxious question. Who am I? It's the stuff of nightmares. Who am I? Who am I? You mean you don't know? No. I thought I did, till I got here. <laughs> I thought I did. And then I see thoughts arising. Well, I say, well, that's me. My thoughts. But then I notice thoughts have a life of their own. They don't seem to, I don't seem to be the owner of my thoughts, nor the controller of my thoughts. If I was, I would just turn them off for a while. I can't claim to be my thoughts. I say, well, I'm the one having the thoughts. So who's who's the one having the thoughts? I'm not sure. Where do I where do I look? Anywhere I look, all I find is the thought about the thought. Who am I? Aside from the the thought of I. And of course, I'm pointing us into a territory that um, thought can't answer. Anxiety would lead us, anytime there's a question, anxiety wants us to find an answer. An answer seems like a secure thing, a safe thing, a neat, complete, finished thing. Actually, for the important questions, the juicy questions, the deep questions, an answer is just a dead thing. There's no more possibility in an answer. Ask, who am I? I'm me. What does that mean? It's a dead thing. It's an empty thing. I'm Martin. Small. Meaningless. So we're asked, actually, to establish a relationship with our uncertainty about who we are. Our society doesn't give us much reflection about not knowing who we are. We easily get the impression, and it's only an impression, and it's not at all an accurate impression, 
but we easily get the impression that other people know who they are. Some people go around as if they're quite confident about who they are. Hi, I'm Martin. <laughs> really? <laughs> sure? <laughs> but actually, to, to notice that we have a certain kind of questioning of our sense of identity, of what this is called Martin, of what this is called world, of what this is called consciousness, of what this is called reality. That's a place of great possibility, deep possibility. An answer may be a dead thing, but the question is a powerful, is something powerful, wide open, full of possibility. Anxiety wants to shut it down and find an answer. But if we can stay, if we can get familiar with that, we can let the question deepen and open. Maybe we start to find that that question permeates all of bodily life, all of conscious life, all of sensory life. What is this? If we don't settle for an answer, then what is this? And our practice together is a way of engaging that question, living that question, embodying that question. So, in that spirit, maybe um, may we relax our tension and drama. May we stay close enough to ourselves to be interested in whatever gets created and reinforced and believed in so that all of that can become increasingly transparent. And in that transparency, we can really see clearly. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.